this balance between trying to help my team feel some optimism, mm. but yet not tread over into toxic positivity. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. I'm Kim Skorupski here at Hopkins, and I'm looking at the lovely face of Dr. Lee Patterson. Hi, Lee. Hi, Kim. How are you doing? I'm great now that I'm talking to you and getting to see you. Friends, if you're new to the Faculty Factory Podcast, Dr. Patterson was on the podcast back in October of 2019, episode number 40. You might want to scroll back on the facultyfactory.org website and look at episode number 40, where Dr. Patterson talked about her new role as interim associate dean for faculty development at East Carolina University in the Brody School of Medicine. And she really shared, she shared a lot of interesting epiphanies around faculty development needs and the foundational component of how uh, faculty's needs evolve and where the gaps were and promotion failures and leadership opportunities. And she described growing the office um, based around these needs and these reaction shifts that she called up. So today I want to start with having Lee tell you her role, currently her role, and then she is going to lead us through an interesting um, story that involves personal career choices and planning. And then all of that choosing, those personal career choices and planning around a global pandemic and what she calls watershed moments. So Dr. Patterson, tell everybody your role and what you do currently, and um, let's just get into the meat. Okay. Uh, Well, thank you. Um, I have had quite a few career changes since that last time that I talked to you. I I became the permanent um, associate dean for faculty development here. Um, But today uh, I am getting ready to um, celebrate my third year in the role as chair of emergency medicine here at ECU. I did that role for two and a half years as an interim, and I've been the permanent chair for almost seven months months now. Um, I have stepped out of faculty development in our main office for the medical school and really focused exclusively in my home department. So um, a little bit of a, a little bit of a shift and a change there. And what perfect timing. I mean, because apparently you knew all about this global pandemic that was rushed right into, yes. into you. Well, how yes. did you, so walk us through this really interesting uh, choice and decision you made and how you uh, you went to the planning and all the strategic, you talked about tactical versus strategic, you know, your, your bread and butter coming as a doc in emergency medicine and how you parlay that into personal career choices. Sure. I, I loved working in faculty development. I still do. And, and I think it's a sort of a cornerstone of what a chair does. But when I be, when I, uh, was working in faculty development, we had an opening and a need rather emergently for someone to step in as a chair of, of a department for a short period of time to shepherd it through a job search. And I actually was the interim chair for the Department of Pathology for a year. That is not my home specialty. Um, I don't I don't have familiarity with it, but as an as a leader in the dean's office, I was available and we had a need and I had been working with that department's faculty in my role. And I um, 
it's okay, I'll step in. Uh, they were undergoing a chair search. And like all things in academics, we're really time optimist. I, I was going to do that for a couple of weeks to a couple of months, and I celebrated a full year with them in pathology. It, it really was a big turning point for me. I before that had absolutely no aspirations to chair a department. I was going to stay in education and that's where my career began. And I was really educating educators and developing them. Um, and I, I really had a moment in pathology of, wow, we need to be doing leadership changes very intentionally. There's a real advantage to having an interim, an interim from within your own institution, but maybe outside the department, step in and help. You know the people you navigate, but your fresh eyes in. Um, interestingly for me personally, I couldn't help them by doing more of the work. I actually just had to lead. I couldn't make that mistake of I'll just do it myself because I'm not a content expert in the area. And so it, it was really a first pass for me in a very different leadership role. It's also the first time I realized the business is interesting and understandable. I really hadn't looked at that. I was grateful to my own chair in the past for keeping all of that up and running. And I focused in my area uh, and I, I mistakenly thought maybe I couldn't do that work. Um, and I found I enjoyed it a lot more. Maybe it was the place I was in my career. Maybe it was just I never given it true, true interest. But the operations and the business side of, of that work was much more interesting to me than I I had previously realized and, and something I felt like I could get get engaged with and, and help. Um, honestly, at that point, though, I thought, yep, I might just be an interim chair. I like this work. This might belong in faculty development and leadership work in helping departments transition and change. Somewhere in that year, my own home department underwent a leadership change, and my dean asked me to, chair, to serve as an interim chair in emergency medicine. Um, so for a brief period of time, I had both both departments, and then and then was able to focus exclusively on my home department. I I approached that as an interim. I'm very intentional interim here. We're going to get us this department ready. We're going to work on rounding things out. Um, a little bit of repair work with some relationship with our hospital, but my job is to be the interim and shepherd the search. And so I. I worked with that search and I worked with the teams and I did a lot of things like, okay, here's what we're going to do. When we have this new chair, let me help you get ready for the conversation I want you to have. Let me help you as vice chairs understand what I think we ought to tell that new chair when they get here so that you're representing your division. Um, and, and unfortunately that's, or fortunately, maybe that first search failed uh, and failed right. Uh, we closed it out right about Thanksgiving before the pandemic began. And we had been in that role about nine months. We were coming up on, on a year. And at that point, I kind of had another one of those moments where I realized, okay, I need to change my strategy here. I'm still the interim, but my, my department can't, can't, my people can't continue to think in this vacuum. We can't be getting ready for the future we can't see. And so the conversation shifted very much from I'm getting ready and here's the decision that the new leader will make to, well, we're going to make this decision. And at some point in the future, it might change, but we're going to forward. And it was really an intentional shift of the team's got to go forward. They've waited long enough getting ready in anticipation, but now I need to make decisions. So I appointed new medical directors. Um, we made changes in policy. I started hiring people a little bit differently. Um, and then I started working with the divisions on what are the next plans going to be because we we're, we don't know we don't have a timeline for the change so let's start making plans and 
we'll have these plans in place as we recruit a new leader. Um, and then there's that moment for us in, in February and in March um, of that faithful year when the pandemic hits and all bets are off. Uh, and I do run an, an emergency department, an academic medical center, and, and two other community EDs fold up underneath us. And that that was just, um, it really was a watershed moment for me. I think it probably will be a defining moment for the next 10 years in my career um, because everything changed and kicked off what's really been two years of near constant change. Um, the worst sort of quarter in history for emergency medicine. We're, we're normally a pretty steady uh, business for our institution. You know, we see hundreds of patients a day and we went at some point to seeing less than a hundred a day and it's where all the patients, what's happened to then multiple successive waves of COVID. But it, it, we at our institution put all searches on hold when the pandemic began and, and everything really went on hold for the pandemic for nine months. Over those nine months, um, I, I just kind of shifted my own outlook. I had, I had already had to shift to making forward plans, thinking about what are we going to next? What are we growing next? What will be our next plans? And I started again, making those decisions, committing the resources. Yes, we're going to add another fellow here. No, we're not going to build this yet. Yes. We're going to now recruit this group of faculty. Um, and I started talking to candidates and telling them, here's the plan, here's what we're doing, but here's the plan, here are the plans we're making. Um, and I just got very attached to it. I really, um, it, it was, it, I, I think the longer I stayed in that role, the harder it was to look at my team and think about leaving them because we were making plans together. Um, I, I am a younger chair. Um, I had to really grow my own vice chairs. They had done some different things before we stepped into it and, and just that let me help let me help this team do a new thing became intoxicating is probably the wrong word, but I really did love it. Um, I do love it so much. Um, and a, a little over a year ago, my hospital president and my Dean came to me and said, you know, we are ready to reopen this search, but we need to talk to you about this. We're not going to open this search till you make up your mind. Are you going to apply or not? But we'd like you to apply. And and that's hard not to hear, not to listen to, too. It's, it's flattering. It's exciting to have people tell you that. Um, and I thought about it long and hard. And for me, I I had, again, I began my journey in, in the interim role with this isn't my job. I'm not going to do this to, oh, maybe I'll do this in the future. And I had really thought this is not my time to be chair. Um, I'm going to help hire a new person. This is not my time. I think I'm going to do this in five or 10 years. I like this. Let me, let me do my other things and then I'll apply for it. Um, and, and as you mentioned, I, I have a young daughter. My daughter is currently a third grader. Uh, she was a first grader coming home uh, to homeschool in the spring in first grade and as the pandemic hit. And I really thought at the time, this is not my time. This is not my family's time. This is a thing I will do later. But the pandemic really upended so much of that. And as I was talking this through, you know, with my husband, who I bounce a lot of these ideas off of, he's also a physician, but he sort of reflected for me, Lee, I know you think you want to do this when she's grown up, but we are doing it now. We've been doing it for two years and we're okay. And I, I, um, I, it really reframed that for me as a woman and a mom in this role of, oh, maybe I don't stop doing this when I'm not a mom. Maybe I actually want to do this now while she's young and I want to be available 
I am still available, but I want to be available differently when she's a teenager and a young adult in a different, different way. Maybe, maybe this is my time to do this. And so, you know, looking at my team and looking at my family, I thought, oh, okay, all right. I think I do want to apply for this job. Um, and I did, I ended up doing that and ended up getting the position permanently all while the pandemic just seemed to roll up and down in, in its intensity. You know, I want to, hopefully, you know, you can um, ride with me a bit because I want to dig a sure. little bit more deeply on this. You have described, uh, come on, I'm, I'm seeing some patterns in you and I'm really curious if it's an emergency medicine training and or a personality characteristic that you have held now at least that I know three interim positions, the interim associate dean, the interim chair for pathology, the interim chair for emergency medicine. And it seems to me that you are, you have this comfortable sense of being uncomfortable. Like you, the uncertainty, you move nimbly from uncertainty to certainty, because you were describing it at some point, you didn't think it was fair for the faculty to not know. So we decided we're going to hire people. We're going to do this. There's a a moment where you kind of say, all right, disbanding with the interim temporary holding pattern. Now we're going to interim with intention. So I think, I think there's a book there. I think there's at least a workbook. There's a module. There's something about the interim with intention, but how can you help us understand a little bit more? Is this ingrained in you from your training, this being able to be comfortable in the discomfort and the uncertainty and then riding with it and then coming to this sense of the pieces. I'm thinking of that movie. What was that movie? That, 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 see, that series, The Girl Who Does the Chess. You know, she like sees the chessboard moving around. In her head. Sure. And, uh, how does that happen? Or is, is that something unique you or both? What are those skills? Um, I think there's probably some of it both. I, I think, you know, I think my career choice now, 20 plus years after I made it, is still the right one for me. I think think some of it comes down to a tolerance for ambiguity. This is also something I really understood when I went to work with the pathologist. So I'm an emergency medicine physician. I operate with the, we call it a limited data set. You come in in crisis and you're sick and I know what I know. And I know patterns of, of disease process, but I don't know all the information. I have a limited data set and I work with it. And I don't always know the final answer. In fact, many times I do not know the final answer because I am sorting you into the right lane where that will be done. I don't know what your biopsy will be. I don't, I go back and look in your chart, but I don't see you progress there. And I often ask a question, um, you know, could this be a heart attack? And I don't want to miss a heart attack. I'm completely comfortable with, I treated you like it might be a heart attack. And then you didn't have one. I'm happy that that happened. Um, And that's, that's kind of an example of really high tolerance for ambiguity. Generalist have high tolerance for ambiguity. Many specialists do not. Um, And I, my medical school is a, is a primary care focused medical school. Um, and I really am almost a little embarrassed as an educator to admit that I have been in meetings where we've tried to help people grow their tolerance for ambiguity instead of finding the right place for yeah. the right tolerance for ambiguity. And when I went to work with the pathologist, they are, their question is not, oh, did I miss an MI? Their question is, what if it's not cancer? Not what if it's cancer, but what if it's not? 
and they have a very low tolerance for ambiguity, and that is a really great place for them. Um, so I think I think some of it comes to that. I do have a high tolerance for ambiguity, and EM does is a specialty. EM does a lot of tactical planning versus strategic planning, right? I don't get to say today is not the day we're going to deal with this problem because it's right there and that's what I do. Um, we always have to find a solution. So the strength of that is we always, we, you know, we enter the room thinking there's got to be a solution here somewhere. We're going to find a plan. The weakness is we don't always stop to say, should we find a solution to this problem today? Or should we table this and think about it more carefully? Um, is is no an option? Um, that's not in our nature necessarily. So yes, I do think that contributed to it. I definitely had people reflect for me because others were far more troubled by the length of time I served as an interim than I was. Part of that is once I'd made the decision of we are no longer in the... Um, role as a readying agent to get this team ready for next. And when that was when that had to come off the table because that that time frame finished and they needed to go on to something next and I began to act in that role I, I really just acted as chair. I'm just not appointed, it's not permanent, it's okay, but I, when there's a problem, when there's something not working right, they come to use the chair as the chief. So I was making these actions and taking those actions. So other other people were very concerned of, well, aren't you permanent yet? When are you? And I thought, well, who cares? <laughs> who cares? A little bit, who cares? Do you have a problem? Do you need me to fix it today? I'm here. Um, I'm hiring people. I'm here. Um, we, we had a site visit, a regular residency site visit during the time. And the site visitor asked the residents, well, you know, Dr. Patterson's only interim. And their response was, really? What does that mean? They didn't know. They couldn't tell. And I felt good about that. They felt safe, secure. Business is moving that's what matters. Um, in some ways, I probably should have paid a little more attention to that because that was perhaps some signal of, oh, I, I need more stability. Not that you, Lee, aren't doing the job I need, but you being permanent says this is stable. This per is stable. perception. Yeah. The perception, the perception. So I, I think there, I th I, towards the end, I thought, oh, I, I kind of began to real at the end of my interim before the, I, I was ultimately able to sign a contract. Um, was that a little bit, maybe you're feeling that and other people feel that. I did have some of my staff tell me I've moved, I finally moved the office around and sort of took it in a different way from my predecessor um, when that happened, because I also realized, hey, I, okay, we're on the five-year plan now. You as a chair make a five-year plan. Let's have it be visually, let's, let's have everybody see that we're making in every way, a little turn here and a, and a, and a movement. So um, for me, as much as them. Yeah, I think, you know, what, what I'm hearing you talk about is, again, back to the perception thing, is that you in uh, or we, so thinking of leaders, that we have certain thresholds and tolerance and feel comfortable in a certain space based on our inherent strengths, our predispositions, our training, our actives, you know, seeking out knowledge and, and information. And if that is working in isolation from recognizing others, that's where we can fall short because while I could be totally comfortable in this zone of interim, kind of taking a day by day and emergency by emergency, other people, as you know, you gave examples they don't, they may not be operating in that vacuum. And so they may not have, they feel like the ground is rumbling underneath them. 
And they're not as comfortable in that. So I, I like how you've pointed out or illustrated it's again, to me, it gets the emotional intelligence and, and true leadership is you having recognized your tolerance for ambiguity and then also being sensitive and attuned to the fact that, aha, through that accreditation that you, you had the vision to see that and then change happen. Because I can imagine some people who might, would be like interims for ridiculous periods of time. And then that kind of erodes confidence, maybe not in the interim, but in the institution, the whole institution, like you, you can't have these, you know, tell, tell us more about some other lesson, lessons you learned around communication. I think we're talking about some like mistakes that you've, you observed that, you know, the balancing the trust despair. I think you put it so nicely of like, you know, oh, sure. balancing, you know, on that fence between communicating over overly communicating, not enough and all that stuff. That was a really great lesson. I like those too. Sure. The, the pandemic has really highlighted that for us about communication. When we began, you know, we were getting daily emails, sometimes multiple emails a day. It was hard to even keep up with that messaging of, is everybody hearing it? And for my team, my faculty, you know, we'd sent them all home, only come in if you're working clinically, we're separated out. And, and they you lose connection quickly and it's hard to be seen. You don't feel like you're seen. You don't feel like you're heard. So we moved into a weekly faculty meeting, which was really not our style, not our history. We did a once a month faculty meeting, come on in, you know, bring your coffee. We'll sit for a couple of hours. And now we meet every week and we've been meeting every week for not quite two years now. In, and every in, time emergency, EM. in emergency medicine and EM, we do a virtual faculty meeting every week first thing in the morning. And I have asked them multiple times, let me know when you're done. And you, you don't have to keep doing this if you don't want to. And, and no one, no one's wanted to stop. That communication and that connection has been really important for us. Um, so people can see themselves, they can see each other. And it even between these waves where everything is all COVID all the time, it's it's been a great vehicle for people to connect with the rest of the department to feel like they know what's going on. It's a much shorter timeline, which a time period for work, for us works very well. But it's a time for people to ask questions. We're we're an open forum. We we're virtual. People speak up, but the, we're irreverent. EM is irreverent specialty, and so we are lots of jokes, lots of irreverence in the in the chat box for it. But it really helps people feel seen. One of the big mistakes I have seen people make is in this last two years is not enough communication. And it's exhausting to communicate all the time. But when you can't get people together, you can't see them. And when you are together, you only see half of them. You, you can't tell if you're being heard or or understood. And and people didn't hear enough. Um, just, yeah, we, just we, we kind of have the opposite thing. We're hearing in Hopkins that people are like, "Stop emailing us." We have oh, sure, emails. sure. Well, not, how are you? How are you communicating literally without annoying your faculty? Because we have we all have this sense of. Do not send another email to us. Yes, yes. And I, I heard that really early on too. Don't send me another email. I can't keep up with that. We found the short virtual meeting real time to be the thing that had worked best for us because people could ask. They could ask clarifying questions. They could get angry. It's still the safe space that faculty meeting is. 
because a lot of what my team needs to do is process their anger and frustration and know that they are seen and understood. But we video it and we send out a short set of notes. So there's one email once a week, most of the time, and the short emails are reserved for a crisis situation that we need to update you on. What I have really had to navigate, particularly in the last two waves, is this balance between trying to help my team feel some optimism but yet not tread over into toxic positivity. And I think everyone needs to hear that. I'm attuned to EM physicians and my EM team is really sensitive to that. You, they are living it day to day, face to face on the ground level. So you cannot, you cannot pretend that it is rosy when it's not. But I also can't indulge so much in that, that I am spinning them into despair and they hear their leader say, yep, all is lost. (laughs) Me, I feel, I do feel like I'm walking a little bit of a tightrope between what's what's, um, harmful or hurtful to them by denying the truth of their experience day to day, that toxic positivity with despair. I I need to acknowledge the truth and then I need to help you um, see that we're going to still keep moving forward. So the world may not be getting better but we are moving forward on our projects. That, that's where I'm trying to navigate it. And I, I tip sometimes one to the other. Um, my team needs to hear me be truthful. If I don't acknowledge the truth, if I'm not transparent about that truth, then I lose their trust and faith mm-hmm. and then we're gone. And so for me, that is what I, that is front and center when I'm talking to them. If I'm trying to I try hard, am I being truthful? Am I, am I helping you know that I see what you see and I'm trying to take it forward your day-to-day experience to the leadership ahead of us. Can you, you know, are, are we still, do we still have trust together is really where I'm trying to navigate that, but it is a tight group, I think, in that communication. So Lee, as a, as a department of an emergency medicine department during a global pandemic, (laughs) how do you, I mean, not, not only walk that line to be being, you know, the, the calm and the storm, but how do you help them refocus the faculty refocus on the future with, you know, clear eyes, but open to opportunity, open to pivoting, open to recalibrating and just maintaining a sense of calm that, yeah, things aren't good now, but in the future, I mean, at some point we're going to get a hold of this and then, and then what, how do you help them have confidence that, Will I be able to get back to my research career? Can I get back to writing papers and writing grants and building programs and teaching trainees? What um, what have, what what are you seeing that's working or that like in that chat they're during these safe weekly meetings that you create these safe spaces where people are irreverent in the chat and they're what are what are the what are you picking up on or what are they trying to hang their hat on other than just keeping their head above water? Well, one of the first things we do is um, accomplishments and celebrations. So we try to each week something good that has happened. We're so hardwired to see the negative that we all are hardwired to see that negative. It requires some intentionality to see the positive. And there is real positive there. And so if we are, and one of my vice chairs, um, Jason Hack said, hey, I want you to do this. We need to call these these celebrations, put them forward. He's working with research. And a lot of that was, hey, let's be sure we make everybody aware when somebody gets a paper accepted, when somebody gets an abstract accepted, that we put everything in there. Tomorrow in our faculty meeting, we've got two of our grads who stayed on as faculty who've passed their specialty boards. 
we we start with that because people people the team in particular can get happy for their own team so they they can they can celebrate themselves um and they want to do that they like doing that um so that's one of the things that we do. We walk around to each of our areas. We, we walk around in each area, presents, presents its, um, here's what I need, here's what's going well, here's what's happening next. One of the things that has been helpful is to try to give people as much control as possible. Hmm. So we have debuted a, a rubric for annual evaluations. So you know, uh, our annual evaluation process has criteria, you get a score, you get a grade, but what you're scored on isn't specified. So we, we've, you know, rolled out in the last year a rubric specific to the department and most recently a um, dashboard uh, using Power BI so faculty can track themselves. And so they know, okay, if I hit this metric, I'm going to be outstanding in my annual evaluation with respect to education or with clinical. Um, they seem to, re- there's so much out of control, but some control and knowing, hey, I can get this we're kind of taking that milestone approach that we use with residents to faculty annual evaluation. And it, that's, that has been very positive for them. I have tried to reframe this in a role for some of our more senior faculty. Here's what you need to be doing and, and just getting back to, okay, we've got this many junior faculty are on the tenure track. Each one of them is getting a meeting with these two vice chairs and me. So we can look at where are you on your trail? Let's give you some personal attention. It requires a lot of energy to carve it out, but I have found my team at least feels the best when they are, investing in their own team, they, they can get behind that. They can do that. They have enough margin for this departmental team. They don't have much margin for the rest of the institution right now mm. or the rest of the, sort of the house and medicine, if you will, but they've got enough for their own juniors that that's, that's, they can do that. They can engage in well, that. Well, I, li- I like that. Uh, let me just sit on that for a second. I like what you just painted for us there is that you know, when in doubt, when you feel like this is an incredible lift as a leader, reminding people like, take care of your own house. The idea is that your own house means your own division, your department, your family, your community, your unit, because that is controllable. That gives me a sense of, okay, I got this. That big other thing is not my circus, not my monkeys. I can't do that, but I can do this. And that's where I have confidence It'd be like, you know, throwing an emergency medicine doc in an emergency room. You're like, yeah, I got it. This is this is my, I'm comfortable here. So I, I like how you describe this strategy that like, don't bite off the whole elephant. Let's just do what we do. And who do you, who do you know? Your people in your group, your team, your family. Let's lifeboat each other. And then as long as we're on the lifeboat, we're all doing well. We are celebrating all of our successes. I see Lee succeeding. That makes me feel like, well, if Lee did it, I can do it. And that's that contagion effect, I think, would be part of motivating us to like, we're going to keep going. We're going to get through this. So I like that because I tend to be a, an extremist like, oh, my gosh, we have to save the whole ship. I can't save the whole ship. I can't. You know, that to me really feeds into my sense of helplessness and that lack of control, like you said. So I like that strategy. And I interrupted you. What else? Right. Of course, no. I tend to do that really well. You were, we were talking oh, sure. about that, um, reminding people to 
take care of their own their own team, their own departments and focus on that. And that gives them control. Do you remember what you're saying before? Andrew? Oh, sure. Some, some of the other part of that um, has been really involving them a bit more in decisions. So hmm. one, my former chair, uh, Ted Delbridge, used to say, they're decisions I make, they're decisions you make, they're decisions we make. Um, and I, I love thinking about that and being clear with that with people but I have actually needed more of my department to engage in what decisions are we making or to understand the scope of the challenges and give input into it. Um, I, I, I didn't come to the role with as much experience as, as my predecessor did. Um, and what I got in my annual evaluation this year from my faculty was that many of them, particularly at a division head or a junior leadership position actually liked that. They found it very comforting. They found it a little bit uh, scary to be sitting in. You think you want to know the information until then you're sitting there looking at it, helping somebody make the decision about what we're going to do or not do. Um, but they, I feel it's very important for contingency planning. I, you know, I, I had a very, I had a discussion very early on with my vice chairs after taking the position permanently of, okay, here's what happens if something happens to me. Um, and I, you know, month, two months into the role of, okay, here are the four of you. Here's what I think you ought to do. Here's what I plan for. And here's, here's what I expect the rest of you to do if something would happen to me. And the looks on their faces were a little bit shocked. And then it was, okay, all right let's make these plans. Um, in some ways, I can't protect them as much as I'd like to. I'd love to protect them from everything and let them do their area of the world, their area of academics, and just, you know, immerse themselves in that and enjoy it. I, I can't afford to, but at the same time, that is also giving them back a sense of control of, I do know what's going on. I do know what we're doing. I am part of the choices and decisions we're making as a department. We're not exactly a democracy. Uh, I don't mean to say that at, at, at all, but I think they have a clear sense of what, of some, what are some of our stakes and challenges. Um, today, our department leadership, my business manager and I did our first presentation of our new budget to our new uh, administration. Here's the department budget. Here's our SWOT analyses. Here's our priorities. Every one of my vice chairs and every one of my leaders at every level had some input into that and then had, and then got to see, here's what this looks like. Here's where I say we're, we're going to commit to money. Here's the plan of if I'm pushed back, what I'm going to say here, here's our, here's our best second Here's what I'm going to lobby for. Here's what I'm going to sacrifice. Everybody understand. Um, and I think it was a very strengthening moment when you talk about how do you keep people looking positively. I think it it may not have been positive, but it was very much the opposite of disenfranchising. This is it, it, it's the team. You're on the team, and if nothing, and for EM, I think that's true for any department, but definitely we're a team sport medicine specialty. It it was it has been a good thing um, for that team. I, I'm curious how you talked about when you were the interim in pathology for a year, you weren't comfortable with their operations and business management, certainly with the content. You wasn't you weren't a content expert. How did you grow this comfort with operations and business management with them? And did that move you into emergency medicines, uh, that, you know, skill set, or did you already know EM's operations and business management? I'm trying to get at this 
what sure. you talked about earlier, how sometimes people, I think, pass on opportunities because they think, I don't know how that works. Yes. And furthermore, not only do I not know how, I don't care about that stuff. I don't want a, that job because that sounds like it involves a lot of legal, blah, blah, blah. And I hate legal stuff. So how did you, um, can you impart some wisdom or to people who may be thinking, did she learn that in pathology? Does she already know it in EM, just thought it didn't translate? And how did you sound like you're really comfortable with that stuff now? I am much more comfortable with it now. I did not know everything about EM. I will tell you the pandemic, uh, and I think this is true for EM leadership across the country, the pandemic really prompted a deep dive crash course into how do we generate revenue? um, How do we balance our revenue versus our expenses in EM? Our department was fiscally productive um, and, and really almost rolled on autopilot for almost a decade of just producing this a nice profit for our faculty practice plan each and every year. And our own practice plan management didn't really know the details because they didn't have to, because it just kind of rolled on. The pandemic hit and all of us had to get get deep in it. Um, But I did what I, what I um, learned in pathology and started to learn in pathology were two lessons. One was that I didn't actually have to have the MBA or the CPA. I had to have one of those people that was was trustworthy. Um, And I was really gifted with an interim business manager in the the department who was loaned to the department from another department that just was, he was such a resource for me. Um, And it's the first time I had worked with a business officer, that kind of uh, role. Um, He was incredibly patient with me, walked me through. We are a state agency and so we've got practice plan, we've got state dollars, we've got uh, university tiers and layers and levels of all of the bureaucracy that go in a state agency. And he was the first person to walk me through some of that. Um, what I learned about myself, I, I'm, I am much more global as opposed to sequential. Um, and I need a sequential person. I need a sequential thinker to balance me out at the business level. I can see the big picture very well. Um, I, I need someone to come at it from the other end of the very stepwise process, and we'll get to the same place. Um, I have a wonderful business manager in this department. Um, and it, that for me was, okay, you are my key person. Um, I've sort of brought her in to, to be really an additional vice chair. Um, and kind of the way I describe it to my faculty is if we were we were uh, a corporation. She is our CFO. <laughs> like she is our CFO. Okay, now I understand what she does. I, I think most people didn't really understand what she did until we went through this year's budgeting process and they sat beside her watching it. But I learned that lesson first of what do I do well? I am very much a big picture global person. So I need the opposite to balance me out. And, and this is not really good people in that role can explain it to you in a way that you can understand. If it seemed complex and almost obfuscating before, you didn't have the right person explaining it to you. You didn't have the right person you could trust helping you with it because it is manageable. Any of us who got a graduate degree could really honestly understand these concepts. And, and so that that for me was really eye-opening um, because as I took that role longer and longer, I had to hire faculty. I had to go to the practice plan and articulate why we were hiring them and what role and, and what were the finances. So I had to learn them um, in that in that space and place. Um, 
but having those good people to help you with that was very, very important. I had taken it for granted in EM. You know, I would, my chair would get up and start talking about those things and I would listen, but I would kind of tune out of, he's got this. Like, and, and I would say to him, you tell me what you need me to do. I support you fully. <laughs> but I didn't get in the weeds. Um, and I was, I was thinking about other things at the time. I just didn't see, I just didn't um, look to no, be no, honest. No need to. You know. tell me what I need to do, but I don't need to know this. And I and I and I trusted them completely. So I think there's part of an element in that. My chair and my vice chair. I just I trusted them, and they did a great job. And so I didn't second guess their question. I had my own area that I really needed to focus on. So I never looked. Mm-hmm. Um, and I on and I would not have looked. For me, that is so true about that interim role. I wouldn't have looked if I hadn't had to look. And then I discovered, wow, I like this. I could do this. I do not have to be, again, that MBA with right. spreadsheets that are perfect. That I I, I don't do those. What a great <laughs> that, great leadership yeah. lesson that you're you're imparting to us, Lee. That we don't have to be the sole proprietor of our complete life. That in the appreciation of where our strengths and our weaknesses are and the fact that we have to, if we're smart, if we're good leaders, we will surround ourselves with an inner circle, a tribe of people who complement our skills and can, like you said, balance out and have their own unique strengths. But that comes from the wisdom and the humility of recognizing this is what I, you know, I know, and this is where my weaknesses are. So we purposely pick people who have those skills, and more, more importantly, as well, how you described it, have the, the, the heart or the mind of a teacher and can communicate that to us in a way that is understandable. That's the, the, the two for, for me. It's one thing to have the knowledge, the skills, and the ad, right attitudes, but if you can't communicate that to me, um, that's where it falls apart. So I think you've described a co- at least a couple of really important leadership principles that you that you employed that are wonderful lessons for us. Thank you. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation with Dr. Lee Patterson. Don't you agree? I always learned so much, and I loved your phrase, um, "time optimists." Yeah. That is so funny to me. That's kind of bouncing around in my head that we tend to underestimate time. Oh, that'll just take a little bit. And I'm thinking of my friend who's redoing her kitchen. That that applies there as well. I'm like, well, whatever he told you, it's going to take you at least double it or triple it now that we have supply chain issues. But uh, I, you've, taught, you've taught me so much. And I really do think there's, you've got real, a calling almost to do a book or a chapter, a blog, something on interim with intention, the intentional <laughs> interim, something like that. And I would love to read that because I know you have so many more lessons here and maybe you'll come back and share them with us. Certainly. Thank you. I've loved this. All right, everybody. Well, thanks for coming in the Faculty Factory podcast. If you want to be a guest or know someone who should be a guest, just email me at facultyfactorykim at gmail.com. That's one big word, facultyfactorykim at gmail.com. You've been learning a lot and been hopefully inspired and encouraged by Dr. Lee Patterson at East Carolina University Brody School of Medicine, the chair of emergency medicine. Lee, thanks so much. Take care. Thank you. Have a good afternoon. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement 
in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.